comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. This is the PKD Black Box, episode 44. Welcome back to the PKD Black Box. I'm your host, Sean Pryor. This week's episode, we have a conversation with Krishna Sadasavam. He is the creator, writer, illustrator, you name it, for such uh, web comics as Uncubed and PC Weenies. Very wonderful conversation. It's really good talking with him. I think you'll dig uh, this week's interview. And then after that, uh, Donnie Salvo returns to the show as he and I just have some little, you know, casual comic and movie talk and random tangents. For for listeners of the show, you know how it goes, so I hope you really enjoy this week's episode. Before we start this week's show, some of you may know this and some of you may not, but in the very, very near future, PKD Media will be merging and joining forces with the HHW LOD Podcast Network. That's the Half Hour Wasted Legion of Dudes Podcast Network at HHWLOD.com. What's going on is, is that the PKD Black Box Tales from the Attic podcast and Carol Chronicles will be joining the HHW LOD site and the episodes will be hosted there in the near future. Um, The PKD Black Box Network feed on iTunes will not change. That will stay the same. So don't panic and don't worry there. If you got it on on iTunes, you're good to go. Um, But you will be able to get all the episodes that we've ever done on HHWLOD.com in the near future. And we'll make that announcement once that is solid and set in stone. But for now, Continue on as if nothing changed. Everything is still at pkdmedia.com. Also, um, PKD Media Web Comics will also be slowly moving over to hhwlod.com as their podcast network will become an entertainment hub. Um, the HHWLOD podcast network does like a lot of pop culture, comics, and TV podcasts. They have Half Hour Wasted, which I've guessed, which I've been a guest on a couple of times. The Legion of Dudes podcast, which I've also been a guest on a couple of times for the Christmas episodes. I've had Johnny M and Jim Dietz from the Legion of Dudes come on the PKD Black Box a few times. There's the Walking Dead TV podcast, which is a very popular podcast. Folks love The Walking Dead. And there's a new uh, short podcast they do called Media Minutes. And the PKD Black Box Network is joining with them as we present an assortment of pop culture and geeky goodness to the listeners on a weekly basis. So, as I said before, the iTunes feed for the PKD Black Box will not change, but in the near future, all the PKD Black Box episodes, Tales from the Attic episodes, and Carol Chronicles episodes will be located at hhwlod.com, and you'll see the PKD Black Box logo. Just click on that, and you're good to go. Also, the PKD Media webcomics, such as Mercury and the Murd, Agents of Cult, those will be available on HHWLOD in the near future, too. Um, I, can't, I don't have a specific date just yet. We're still working out um, working out issues as to you know how to host the comics properly to make sure everybody can see them and things like that. So the HHWLOD network, podcast network, joining with PKD Media, 
will now become in the future like this entertainment type hub where you will have podcasts or you'll have web comics and comics and you know who knows what you know reviews everything you can think of and it's just it's a really solid merger because for everything I do and as we've talked about over the weeks action lab and all this other stuff it's really difficult for me to maintain and upkeep a site on my own and yes, I know I got, you know, Johnny M as publisher. I got Jason Grice as manager of operations. But on top of what they do, they don't manage the site. You know, I still take care of that when I can. And it's going to be easier to merge forces with HHWLOD. And I'm still able and we're still able to present you with quality content, wonderful comics and just good times. And it makes it easier on me. So I think it's a good move and I think it's a good thing. And this is also an opportunity to expose PKD media to a slew of half hour wasted and Legion of Dudes and Walking Dead TV podcast uh, fans that have never heard of us before. It's it's a wonderful thing. It's a good merger for both sides. Um, the HHWLOD family has, you know, been nothing but great to me. So when both sides talked about this, I had a long talk with Johnny M about it, and he talked with the with you know with the group, and they were cool with it. So everything is great. So don't worry, PKD Media isn't going anywhere. We're just moving down the street. So it is all good. And like I said before, the iTunes feed will not change. So don't panic there. You also will be able to get all the episodes on HHW. LOD.com in the near future and the comics as well and more possibly even more goodies in the future. So be on the lookout for that. So we're just growing and we're moving in the right direction. And also I want to thank everybody for helping us hit our goal on the Action Lab Kickstarter fundraiser. As of this recording, we are close to $3,800. That puts us about $200 overall over our goal, which is great for those still interested in donating. You can go to kickstarter.com, type Action Lab in the search header, hit enter. You'll find our project. Click on it. Donations start as low as a dollar if you're interested. There's a video. There's a description of the project as a whole. So if you're still interested, the last day to donate is January 14th at 11.56 p.m. If you're interested in donating, there are rewards if you do. And I thank everybody that has donated to this project. It means everything. And we promise to give you the best comic books we possibly can at Action Lab. So you know what? I've yapped enough. Let's get the show rolling. Ladies and gentlemen, we are officially larger than life. Uh-huh. Stay the set. The lights are on. And this is where the magic happens. So without further ado, our feature... I'm joined on the line right now by creator of Uncubed and PC Weenies. Uh, his name is Krishna Sadasavam. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great, Sean. Thanks for having me. Oh, hey, thanks for thanks for being on the show. And I, and I pronounced your name correctly on the first try, right? Yes, you All did. Right. <laughs> excellent, <laughs> excellent. It's really nice having you on having you on the show. It's um, I've been waiting to do this for a while. I I had the opportunity to meet Krishna at uh, the Up Fair in Lexington, Kentucky, which was like this nice staple of independent creators of comics and art. And it was just a very well, well, well put together, a nice show. And while walking around, I, um, I saw Krishna and he had a copy of a, a flip book of Uncubed and PC Weenies. And so we started talking, had a good conversation, and he led me to other people. And, and like all this networking started, and it was just really, really nice. And when I got my copy of Uncubed and PC Weenies, I 
I've been talking with Krishna via the email back and forth, and I just really wanted him to be on the show because um, I, I enjoyed reading PC Weenies, and I really enjoyed uh, reading Uncubed um, mm-hmm. from this uh, sampler edition, this flip book. And so I said, you know what, let's go ahead and, uh, and bring Krishna on the show. So we, I'm, I'm serious. I'm very ecstatic to have you here today. I'm very excited to be here. This is great. Probably the best lead-in I've had. Thank you. <laughs> you know, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. Let's go ahead and talk about your start in the world of art itself. Well, I mean, it's going to sound very cliche, but, uh, you know, I've been drawing very, you know, uh, ever since I was a little kid. So uh, my fascination from a very young age was uh, with animated cartoons. I knew growing up that that's what I wanted to do and I had no idea how animated cartoons were made or anything about I, I didn't really know anything about comics but I love to draw I love to watch TV and attempt to draw the characters that I really enjoyed watching so uh, I think from that kind of uh, that environment I kind of gradually found comics and uh, continued to draw all through my life mm-hmm. now as far as comics go um, growing up, were you more of a reader of the um, of the everyday funnies in the newspaper, or were they just uh, did you go to like a comic book store or hit a or hit a comic rack at a uh, convenience store? When I first got into comics, it was actually through the Sunday papers. Uh, I mean, Peanuts and uh, let's see, Blondie and a lot of strips uh, that were back in the newspapers were, was really my first exposure to comics as a medium. And then uh, I remember my parents because I was a really huge fan of Roadrunner and Coyote as a kid. Uh, that was my favorite cartoon to watch on television. Um, they had a spinner rack of, I think, Gold Key Comics. Yes. They were an old uh, comic book uh, publisher uh, back in the day, and they made a lot of, quote-unquote, funny animal comics like Uncle Scrooge and Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner. And they had a three-pack of Roadrunner comics, and that was the very first set of comic books that I purchased. And I read them over and over again. And I think uh, when I first got these books, I was like five years old, so I had my parents read them to me. You know, I quickly started to develop an interest in reading and uh, just kind of it, it bloomed from there. I didn't hit superhero comics until I was about 14 or, yeah, roughly 14 or 15, right before I hit high, uh, high school. See, that's interesting. Like, like from my background, I, had, um, I, I came up before the superhero books. The first books I read were Richie Rich comic books. And, and the only reason why I read Richie Rich comic books was because at the time there was a Richie Rich cartoon. So mm-hmm. while, you know, while um, with my mom, we stopped by a convenience store, there's Richie Rich comics. I'm like, oh, I saw that on TV. Let me get this. And my mom mm-hmm. bought me a couple of copies and mm-hmm. a couple of issues. And, and I just loved it. And I got into it. From there, I saw Star Wars. And lo and behold, there's Star Wars comic books. I probably got into superhero books probably, I probably say like around age of like nine or ten. But for like mm-hmm. the first, from like age four through nine it was all about richie rich and star wars comics and that was it maybe spider-man here or there but Mm -hmm. it was all about if it had a animated series i made sure i tried to find a comic book for it oh wow you know your your uh your entrance into superhero comics is very similar to mine because my first introduction to superhero comics was i think when i was about eight or nine i think a couple of uh friends had given me a couple of uh legion of superheroes comics for my birthday Mm -hmm. And as an eight-year-old kid uh, opening, uh, opening up an issue, I couldn't tell heads or tails of what was going on. And I felt very, very intimidated with that reading experience. I still remember this to this day because I still have those two issues. I was just like, wow, this is just really over my head. And I got really scared. I, I mean, I, 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 I kind of shrugged those comics away. And I would see those comics on the spinner racks. But, you know, those two Legion of Superhero issues – 
left such a really weird taste in my mouth that I never even bothered to pick up any of the Marvel or other DC books just to give them a try. And my first introduction to Marvel Comics was actually through Transformers and G.I. Joe. Seeing the commercials on TV and being a fan of the cartoons, I wanted to read the comics to find out what stories were going on in, in, in those particular issues. Oh, oh, definitely. See, and that and that takes me back, like you, like you said, with the G.I. Joe uh, comic book commercials and the Transformer comic book commercials. That was an excellent way back, mm-hmm. then, back then to sell comic books. Um, because oh, that, yeah. that got people and ki- kids and, and adults or whatever, that, got more pe- that reached out to more people than, say, for instance, nowadays where, yeah, you can use the Internet to let people know that your comic exists you can have like a, a website and all these other things so there are definitely ways to out you know to reach and connect with other with other um, readers and f- you know future readers and so forth and so forth but back in the 80s if that, those GI Joe commercials would come out and if, yeah. and I would run straight to the store every time I know. I mean, really, the the G.I. Joe commercial that I remember very vividly was the one that introduced Serpentor. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow, this is really cool. Cobra Commander is getting overthrown by this guy. I got to find out what's happening. And I I would tell my parents – this is a really funny story. Like when I was in eighth grade, my parents would take me to the public library. And I discovered that there was a comic book shop less than a block away from the library. So I would tell my parents to take me to the library and then I'd sneak – down to the comic book shop and I'd save my lunch money to go ahead and buy those issues of G.I. Joe and Transformers. And I I always felt like a very – because like, you know, I I didn't know if my parents would necessarily approve of the fact that I'm actually buying comics or or what. But this is just – you know, for me, this is like exciting. It was almost – uh, almost James Bondy in the way I would smuggle some of these books in. <laughs> but that was that. I mean, that was just the power of the medium in, yeah. in, in, in the eighties. I mean, it was it was so powerful. I mean, and granted, books were selling nowadays. Like when, in the comic book world, like if a book sells like one hundred fifty thousand copies, it's considered a winner. But back, oh, yeah. but back in the eighties and early nineties, if a book sold one hundred fifty thousand copies, it got canceled. Yeah, can you believe that? That I mean, that's how much the game has changed. I don't know if the industry hurt itself and in a way it probably in a way it, it has but um mm-hmm. you know it's you know part of it's on the industry part of it's on the reader it's everybody's to blame for this because to mm-hmm. me with the power one with the power of the internet the power of electronic media and just the way that all the different ways we can read things and do things nowadays there mm-hmm. is n- no way in, in my mind it's just it makes no sense to me that like an average you know top tier title isn't getting more than you know should should be able to have more than a million readers a month, mm-hmm. but it's it's not like that, and I and I just don't understand that. Well, I, I think part of that, uh, and this is a discussion that I've had quite a bit with other cartoonists and just being a comic fan in general. The way a lot of us got into comics was through those spinner racks at the Winn Dixie or or the grocery store or at the Barnes and Nobles, and 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 I think to some degree there are comics in bookstores, and you can seek them out through trade paperbacks and so forth. But man, they were just so much more accessible to the everyday person. I remember buying several comics at Seven Elevens, and uh, you know just just. Everywhere you go, you you would find comics. My parents would take me grocery shopping, and I would pretty much just hunker down next to the spinner rack and just you know browse through comics while they were grocery shopping. And that's gone now. I mean, now you have to actually seek out comics at a comic book shop. Right. And and it's not like every comic book shop is accessible to the average mm-hmm. to the average Joe and the average Gene. You know what I mean? Exactly. There are some great stories out there, but when it becomes like its own little retail market, you got to make sure whoever's running that shop knows how to run a retail market, which, you know, in Mm -hmm. other words, 
you know, you're able to bring every, you know, as many people in as possible. And you're always going to have those people that you just can't connect with. It's just, you know, that's just a part of life. You know, you got to find a way to bring people in and to get people to check out books. Mm-hmm. And it just, yeah, it, it, it bothers me. It bothers me that grocery stores just said, you know what, we're not doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, or like your convenience stores and stuff like that. You know, some convenience stores, you'll, you'll find like a Spider-Man book or, or a Batman book from time to time. But it's really about it. They don't really stretch out. As, as far as they used to. And, yeah. in, and in a way, I can't blame them because the way a lot of comics are written nowadays, they're written for the trade. So if an average person comes in and picks up that issue of uh, Batman and they're like right in the middle of the story and they don't know what happened before or afterwards and, they, and they're not sure how, where to get previous issues, you know, yeah. why, invest that, why invest that money? It's just a mess. And it's, it, there has to be a simpler way just to get this all worked out. And I know the digital comics era, which has been talked about on this show a number of times, mm-hmm. it's it's coming and it's coming it's coming along. I think it's going greater for independent publishers like the people who do Atomic Robo and mm-hmm. things like that. It's going great for them, but for like the bigger publishers, I personally feel that they're still struggling to say here yeah. we, we've got we've got stuff we've got books for you here, but the pricing is still an issue. And as far as Ownership of the content that you purchase, I think, is also an issue as well. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think many of the established companies like Marvel and DC, it's my understanding that they've been very reluctant because they're afraid of piracy and things like that. But the independent cartoonist, by comparison, uh, feels like they have a lot more to gain because they're exposing their work to a much wider audience. Mm -hmm. I, I think digital comics are really going to be the next big push, and I think it's going to reintroduce... The, the big two comics and even independent comics to a new generation of people that may have never really even read or picked up a comic before. Almost oh, definitely. And especially with all the vendors, I know as of right now, there are at least a minimum of 13 vendors out there right now, not even including Marvel and DC themselves uh, doing their thing. So it's, it's a really good moment to hop in right now. If you're, if you're an independent guy, if you're an independent publisher or gal or, or whatever, get in the game right now. Yep, absolutely, absolutely, and and that's what I'm, I've been trying to figure out, just to to find a way to learn about the the iPod and and, and the uh, the iPad applications, and it's almost like you almost have to either know a programmer that's very very well versed in in programming and, and and getting you set up, or you have to learn it yourself. And as an independent cartoonist, I'm juggling many hats, so. I'm just like, okay, there's just another thing that I've got to learn now, too. <laughs> Not that I'm opposed to it. It's just right. that there's only 24 hours in the day. Oh, so. no, no, no. Trust me. I understand. Uh, no, in all, in all seriousness, believe me. Believe me. I understand. I tell you what, let's uh, talk about uh, some of the uh, comics that you do, uh, such as uh, PC Weenies and Uncubed. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about uh, Uncubed first. Um, okay. Uncubed, uh, which is the life and times of an Indian guy named Krishna. I had read uh, your sampler, and um, the first sh- the first strip in this book gives an excellent breakdown of what the comic is all about and how we should feel and embrace the comic from here on out. In the first strip, it says, uh, Growing up, I resented being different. I just wanted to fit in with everyone else. Mm-hmm. To the typical American, I was just a weird Indian kid with all the associated stereotypical baggage that went along with the label. To the Indians in India, I was too American and was automatically branded as an ABCD, American-born confused uh, Desi? 
Yeah, Daisy. Daisy. Yeah, that's got it. Yep. And then, then the last, the last panel says, "I felt like a freak." Mm-hmm. And then, and then after that, it's you know just. Uh, you know moments you know moments from childhood or just everyday things that you you know that you've dealt with and you know there's a lot of funny stuff in there i really enjoyed one the humanity the humanity that you brought to the comic and to the strips themselves and just those moments to say you know yeah we're you know we may be different but you know we're all in the same game when it's all said and done and that's the whole point of the strip really it's not to go ahead and you know explore differences but to show really how similar we all are we just have we have our own cultural identity or cultural background and when you're in the melting pot, you you kind of lose some of those things, but then you also carry certain things too. So even though I may not necessarily do all the things that a traditional Indian person does back in the day in India, I mean, I'm still Indian and I, I can't escape that and I don't want to escape that. And at the same point in time, I'm also American too. So it's kind of like this weird, weird blend. You know, and I think, you know, all, you know, all cultures, like any time, I know that's something that even I've dealt with in my time. I mean, growing up, you know, growing up where I grew up, it was one of those things where as a kid, I just, you know, I was a nerd. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I was a flat out nerd. And the, the funny thing was about it was in some aspects, depending on where I was, like but some white kids thought that like I was too black. You know, even mm-hmm. I mean, it's not and it's, it wasn't that it was just I was just I was just different. You know, like I was big into Star Wars. I was big into learning about computers. I was. You know, I just always, I just always wanted to learn something, and to the black, mm-hmm. and to like a lot of the black kids, I wasn't black enough. So, you know, I felt like an outsider. Mm-hmm. And you know, and when it really came down to it, was I mean, I did have friends, and I said, you know, I've got friends. I said, I, and you know, and, and these folks accept me for who I am. I said, no matter what in life, no matter where I go in life, it's always going to be like that. Somebody will say you're not black enough, and other people say you're too black, and other people say we don't know what you are. But mm-hmm. when it really comes down to it, if you know who you are, that's all you need to know. Yep, that's right. And it's just it's about securing your own identity and saying, "Hey, I am uh, you know, a product of two different cultures and let me just embrace that and forge forward instead of being held uh, held by the past." I mean, I think the nice thing about the internet and and uh, how how global everyone's gotten is that people are much more uh, you know, a little bit, you know, tolerant or a little bit more educated by and large about other cultures now than at any point in history. I mean, as an Indian kid growing up, I was the only Indian kid in my school. And, you know, the, the food that we ate did not correspond with the cafeteria food that the school offered. And so you'd get funny looks like, that's really weird. But, you know, all those kids that were saying, hey, that's really weird food, now totally dig Indian restaurants. Yes. I mean, it's just, it's really a, a very crazy, <laughs> uh, almost contradictory type of thing. But that's that's just the way life works sometimes, man. Yeah, yeah. Now, how long have you been uh, doing the Uncube comic? Uh, since 2007. I started in August 2007, a few months. Oops, hang on. Oh, no problem. My, my little daughter is <laughs> in the studio with me singing along. Oh, no, it's all right. No problem. No problem at all. Uh, but I started in August 2007, and you know I've been continuing it along for almost four years now. The publishing schedule over the last couple of months has been a little bit crazy. I haven't updated as regularly as I would like to, just because life has gotten in the way. Yes. But hopefully, once things settle down after our move, then I'll be able to go ahead and resume working on the strip. The interesting thing about it is uh, I've actually solicited uh, guest strips from people, and it's 
kind of weird because it's like, well, how do you do a guest strip for an autobiographical comic? <laughs> I've had one submission so far from a good friend of mine, Rob Stenzinger, who I met at the Up Fair. Mm-hmm. And I told him, why don't you just go ahead and draw a comic about our first meeting? Like, how did, how did we meet? And maybe anything, any kind of anecdote that came up from that meeting. And he, he delivered. I'm hoping that I can get more such guest comics uh, to uh, entertain the readers and to offer a different perspective. I think you'll be able to do that without any problems at all. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> now, as far as like your art style for Uncubed, what would you define your um, art or car- cartoony style to? Well, I mean, I'm not sure what the style actually completely fits, but I'll say that my influences, I, I really like uh, Steven Silver. I really like uh, Brian uh, Caldwell. Let's see, uh, Cedric Onstott. A lot of these folks that do a lot of character design work for 2D animation and character design in general and illustration. Uh, Tom Richmond is, is another person that I really, really like. And I'm not sure if the, uh, if the style is directly reflecting upon my influences, but I think to some degree there are some subconscious things that I do based upon the work that I admire that, that kind of gets put into the artwork. But I don't know if I have a, a direct influence in terms of style, you know, that goes into that stroke. Oh no, no, that's cool. Uh, I was just, I was just curious because I mean, I just enjoy, I, like when I look at when I look at the art for uh, Uncubed, like the use of uh, like the use of shapes to you know define characters. I know some when some people draw characters like you, you you see the image and you see the face and you see the body and with some people when they draw they just put it out there but mm-hmm. that character isn't really defined if you know what i mean yeah. but like with um uncubed all the characters are very like just defined i know who this person is you know if, no matter what and i know from this image this is what this person stands for or mm-hmm. you know or this person this person's behaviors or or mannerisms or or character rhythms and I can mm-hmm. and I can just tell that from the art, and I just really enjoy that. Oh, cool! Thank you. I mentioned earlier that uh, we had met at the Up Fair, and you had talked about the Up Fair for a moment. Now, for those that don't know about the Up Fair, the Up Fair was in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. It was a show for independent comic book creators and, and artists. And whatnot, and it was a one. It was a one-day show, right? Yes, it was a one-day show. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was a one. It was a one-day show, and I had opportunity opportunity to go. I originally had an opportunity to have a table, but due to uh, certain circumstances, I couldn't. Uh, I just I couldn't attend. But I was able to stop by for a little bit and check out the show. I was just wondering if you could give the people your opinion on the up there. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, first of all, I was invited by uh, Jersey Drozd and Mark Rudolph, Sarah Turner. Uh, Sean Robert and uh, and his wife uh, Carrie. I hope I got that right. Uh, I'm really bad with names, but uh, they were gracious enough to invite me to come to the show. I just had a wonderful time. Uh, the, the vibe of the show was very, very excellent because uh, you know everyone was there to talk comics, and there were no clicks. There were no you know there there was no one there to see Chewbacca or anything like that. The people that came to the show by and large, were interested in discovering something new. And that's what I really liked about the Up Fair. It was a venue not only for creators to go ahead and share how they go ahead and produce the work that they produce, but also people were there because they have a genuine love of making comics. 
And uh, in most big conventions that you see, uh, they, 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 they spend a lot of time, you know, promoting all the celebrities like, uh, you know, you know, Captain Kirk and, you know, uh, Spock and, and all these, you know, people that, you know, I think are doing quite well for themselves. But this is a, a, tr- a, tr- a show specifically for the independent cartoonist. And uh, that vibe really came across. It was, it was a great experience. Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd have to agree because when just walking around and stuff, just having people actually have conversations with, like, artists and creators and whatnot, and they were really into it. Mm-hmm. You know, they were really into it. Nobody, nobody shied, shied away from anybody. You know, if somebody had a question, they would ask that person. Or So when I started talking to you, I came up to talk to you for a couple minutes, and that led into, like, a conversation about 90s comics, which led into a conversation about Ghost Rider, to which one of the creators down the way got into the conversation, too. And then, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was crazy. But at the same but it was, but it was cool. It was, just, it was a very nice open show. And, yeah. and, I, and, I, and I appreciated that more than anything because I did my, my fair share of conventions in 2010. And probably, like, a couple of shows that I went to that were very creator-friendly, like uh, the CGS Super Show, Summit City Con in Fort mm-hmm. Wayne, Indiana. Those were very creator-friendly, very artist-friendly. Um, you know, you had artists from, like, you had, you had your big gun artists, and you also had your independent artists. You also had your, you know, and also independent creators. And it was just nice blend. And, mm-hmm. you know, nobody felt that they were better than anybody else. Yeah. Um, and I've also been to the bigger shows where some, sometimes the little guys get pushed in the corner and you got to toot your own horn to get people to come your way. You know, you don't annoy people, but you have to really work to make people understand what you have is just as important as a bigger publisher. So yeah. there's definitely a lot of work, a lot of work when it comes to that. But I just really like that, that closeness and just um, open open feeling of the upfair as a whole. Mm-hmm. And, and I think one other, other distinguishing characteristic that the upfair brings that uh, I haven't really seen in any other major convention is that there were workshops that were held by independent cartoonists just to educate anyone who was interested. Uh, the workshops were all free for the public and you could go and you could uh, take a workshop on character design. You could take a workshop on making prints. You could take a workshop on uh, understanding how uh, user interfaces play into storytelling and all these were free, open to the public. And uh, you had creators just, you know, that were ready, willing and able to go ahead and uh, impart that information. And uh, that to me was the biggest takeaway from the upfair, just being able to interact with so many other folks that were there to learn. Uh, I, I teach, so this dovetails nicely into the type of uh, type of work that I do anyway. I was a tad salty that I couldn't uh, sit in, you know, any of those seminars and stuff because I really wanted, I really wanted wanted to, but I just did not have time. So, mm-hmm. but no, I, but once again, I from everybody that I talked to, they said that all those sessions went very, very well. Yep, they did. Kudos to the organizers again for making everything so smooth. Let's move over to the PC Weenies, or Tech Tunes for Tech Enthusiasts. enthusiasts. Mm-hmm. What was your inspiration to create uh, this comic? Well, uh, if we go back to the uh, heady days of 1998, I, I was the lone Mac user, and my, my background actually is in engineering. I, I studied electrical engineering. I, I got my bachelor's and master's and uh, worked for a company that designed graphics chips for, for PCs and for, for standard, you know, arcade games. And that's what I was doing once I completed college. But I'd always wanted to draw. I'd always expressed a really strong interest to do something else outside of 
the, the typical geek stuff that an engineer normally does after work. In that time and place, uh, I was a Macintosh user. I still am. But uh, being a Mac user working for a company where everyone predominantly used PCs kind of left uh, – You know, it was another uh, point of, um, I guess, differentiation. And again, I felt like I was the lone pioneer in, in uh, you know, a, a den of uh, darkness. I, I just, you know, I, I liked the Mac even back then, and uh, people just, I think, just didn't understand that. And th- there was some, you know, ribbing and persecution, uh, you know, in, in, in a good-natured way. But people were just like, "Wow, you, you, well, why do you want to use a Mac?" You know, <laughs> this wouldn't mean so much for me if it weren't for the fact that throughout my life I've experienced things like this. Whether when it's not about a computer platform, when it's about me, so I, I really kind of took a lot a lot of that to heart. But the the strip really came about because I wanted to be able to start a comic, and I wanted to be able to to tap into some of the tech stuff that I'd learned and did on the you know at work, and also wanted to tap into the whole uh, the computer dynamic. So PC Winnie's was born just because I wanted to start something different. Now before that, I was doing you know some sketches and uh, pen and ink stuff with superhero based characters that I'd come up with. But this is just something that just hit me from, from left field. And I wanted to run with it. I'd never written comedy before. I'd never, I never even, uh, even considered doing a humor based strip, but I don't know, somehow the idea came out and I just put the first comic up on the, on the net and didn't think much about it. I, I you know, I really use it as an exercise to go ahead and figure out how to make a web page. Then I got an email from someone. Uh, I still don't know who that person was. I don't remember that person now. But the, the email was something to the effect of like, hey, I like this one. When's the next one coming out? And at that point, I realized I had an audience of one and I made another strip. And then I got more people following. And I think the very first big traffic spike that I had was through a, a magazine called Mac Addict, which sent a link to PC Weenies. And um, you know, ever since then, traffic has grown. So, I mean, what started as just kind of a very casual thing, I, it's not like I went into this saying, hey, I'm going to make webcomics because even that term wasn't even coined then. Right. So I just put something out and people responded to it and they enjoyed it and I decided to continue doing it because people were reading it. I think, I think what I like most about PC Weenies is the character Bob. Bob, mm-hmm. Bob, some of the things that Bob goes through, I go through at, at my job <laughs> on, on, a, on a daily basis. And like on the first page of the uh, PC Weenies Uncubed uh, Sampler Number Two, the last strip on the first page it says the many unsung roles of a systems administrator, a wizard, <laughs> and in the panel just says there's this guy with his computer it says strange, it's working now that you're here, but I swear it wasn't just a minute ago. How did you do that? <laughs> and and Bob says magic. And then there's one that says doctor, and then one that says bouncer, <laughs> and he's uh, bouncing out malware and and spyware and stuff and then one says zombie and it's late night like 305 in the morning and he has to fix the server because it's down but yeah. these t- these types of situations i've dealt with at least every other strip i'm like i've dealt with that at work i've dealt with that at work i've dealt with that at work and when you start to do comics like very um on very specific things like a technology or, mm-hmm. or, or you know just something that's just very very specific Sometimes it's difficult for people to consistently find those comedy beats or, or to find those moments and, and it always make it stick and always, you know, make it funny. You found a way to do that. And, I, and I'm sure a lot of that just comes through your work experience. It's really tough writing. Even today, I still struggle with the writing aspect of, of making comics. And it's something that I will uh, – uh, very rarely I'll, I'll actually get it on the very first try. But it's an iterative process. 
and it's by no means easy. I, I'm always kind of gnashing my teeth, kind of figuring out like, okay, the dialogue doesn't have quite the punch that I'm looking for here. What do I have to do? In fact, I'm actually working on a, a, a strip for Wednesday for tomorrow, and I'm, I'm still kind of noodling around with the dialogue. It's a process that takes a lot of struggle, and if, if it seems like it's effortless, then that's that's really uh, quite flattering, but it's it is really a lot of work. I mean, I really have to put a lot of time into it. And uh, my background with PC weenies and and what many people may not be aware of, uh, at least the the folks that have picked up the strip within the last two two years, is it used to be a single panel strip. In fact, for the first seven years, the comic was single panel based, and uh, that was really tough. I mean, I enjoyed it, and I was living on the razor's edge because you could you either lived or died by the the punchline. If the punchline wasn't good, then the comic just fell flat. So I kind of kind of honed my way just with single panel strips for a long, long time. In early 2008, I decided to make the switch. I'm like, I need to start telling some stories. I've got these characters here and I want to develop them more. And the only way I'm going to be able to do that is if I go ahead and put them in situations and stories. And I was terrified, Sean. I was terrified when I actually jumped from single panels to multi-panels. I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And I really thought that after about two weeks, I'd switch back to single panels because I, I just would feel too uncomfortable because instead of one panel staring at me, one blank panel, I had four blank panels. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, this is just like, this is just too much. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. It's just, it's all about getting in that groove and, and taking Mm -hmm. those, and taking those chances. And lo and behold, you did. And because of that, PC weenies has has grown and and advanced itself so much that you have a 120 page collection coming out soon, right? Well, it's actually out. Uh, oh, the 120-page book is called Rebootus Maximus. That took about nine years to make. Uh, mostly it was nine years of me wishing that I could make a book and then a few hard months of just putting it together. But it came out in August 2009. It did really, really well. It's my first uh, trade paperback book that collects uh, the strips from 2008 all the way to mid-2009. And I'm, I'm really proud uh, about how it came out. I'm, you know, it's my first publishing effort, but I've learned so much doing, doing that whole thing. Now, um, now, where is that book? Is that book still available? And if so, where can people get it? Yes, you can get it at PCWinnies.com. If you visit the site and you look right underneath the comic, there's a yellow button that says buy the PC Winnie's book. If you click on that, it'll take you to the order page. Ah, very so, nice. Very nice. Yeah. I just want to make sure people know how to get it. Um, Web comics and just comics people on the Internet that mm-hmm. they have excellent material. And even though people can read it on the net for free, sometimes like actually purchasing something from them is difficult. Yeah. So I know it's just it's nice to know that people can just go and click boom and get it and boom, they're done. So that's that's a good thing. Where do you think you see PC weenies a few years from now? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I, I definitely want to hone my writing chops. And within the past year, I've uh, explored more story arc driven based comic strips. And I'm getting a handle on that. And, uh, you know, that's that's been the, the latest struggle. But I hope to go ahead and continue to develop that. And I've got plans for Bob and his family. Most notably, I've done a lot of shakeups with regards to the characters and their status quo. I've put Bob into a job now where he works for a company that's called Foodle, which rhymes with your very popular search engine company that everyone uses. And Foodle is not is not what people think it, it really is. It's actually a company that's not really run very well, but people seem to want to work there because nobody does anything and you get paid lots of money. Mm-hmm. 
so I, I've been exploring that storyline. The latest shakeup that I also have is I had Grandpa inheriting $218 million from a Nigerian lottery email that he responded to. So it's hard to say where the strip is going to be three or four years from now. I, I literally plot the strips the week before they run on the, on the internet. But uh, what I do want to do is I want to have storylines that will touch upon every main character and really give the audience an, an opportunity to empathize and understand where these characters are coming from and hopefully introduce a few more new characters or players that will, uh, that will add to the whole uh, tapestry of the story. Nice. From, like I said, from what I've read from, the sam- from both uh, the sampler edition of um, the Uncube and PC Weenies and from what I've read online, you definitely have a lot going for you. And it's definitely something that's going to continue to move forward. The one nice thing I've noticed about like a lot of the people that I've been talking to in, at the convention circuit and talking to, you know, talking to people that do their own comics, there is the state of progression. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I love seeing that in all creators, that constant growth. And I've yet to see any creators that things grow and then they just become stagnant for a while. And mm-hmm. I mean, some people, and with some people, it's just like that. You know, you, you run, 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 need a break, get back on, get back on that train, and do it again. But but with gentlemen like yourself and so many others, I've seen nothing but progression, and I think that's just a great thing. So the best is always yet to come. Yeah, that's right. That's that's absolutely right. And I think the more the, the thing with the the regimen of web comics is that you're you're making comics on a continual basis. So the more you make comics. I think just the more you draw, the better you're going to get. At some point, you're going to hit some artistic plateaus, but that's when you step back and you you try something different. But you're always drawing, and the more you draw, I think the the better you're going to get. I mean, the very first PC Winnie strip, which is not online, by the way, I, I do have the very first strip uh, in, in the Rebootus Maximus book. There's a night and day difference. When I first started the strip, Sean, I, I had no idea about Photoshop. I had a tablet. Mm-hmm. I had Photoshop. But I didn't know how to use anything. And I was just – it was literally, hey, I'm learning how to use Photoshop and a Wacom tablet. It's just through a lot of trial and error and a lot of practice that I, I, I've been able to uh, you know, make some improvements in, in, in my own work. But you know, it, it's an ongoing process and I think the more people draw, the, the, uh, the more opportunities of practice they're going to have and the better they're going to get. Now, you brought up an interesting point with the Wacom tablet. Now – um, when you do your strips, you uh, do all this digitally, correct? Yes, I do them all digitally now. Okay, mm-hmm. excellent. Now, now, and then, how long have you been doing that for? Probably like two or three years, or? Um, well, it's weird. When I first started PC Winnie's, uh, it was an all digital strip, and I didn't know anything about resolutions or anything else like that. It was just pretty much done digitally. But then, when I went to uh, I went to college at the Savannah College of Art and Design. So after I worked in, as an engineer for about four years. I decided to go ahead and reevaluate, and I went back to school, and I got my MFA in animation, and uh, I did a lot of drawing. So I uh, started keeping sketchbooks, and that's really where I think a lot of the artistic growth came about, just through taking courses and and, and having to you know really tap into a lot of animation based classes. Um, and then for a while, I did the strip where I would draw it in my sketchbook and then scan it in, and then I would go ahead digitally ink. But after a few years of doing that, I think in mid-2009, maybe it was a little bit after that, I switched back to digitally uh, 100%. Uh, there's no looking back now. I mean, I won't be able to sell any originals, but for the, for the kind of time schedule that I keep, it's just a very quick way of me producing content. I just think it just makes things easier on the artists themselves. And some do a little bit of both. They go both digital and they still use paper too, but to each their own. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. Because that's the one thing about art. There's no one way to do this. 
Yeah, it's just a tool. I mean, everything is just a tool, whether you use a, a Winsor Newton brush or whether you use a Wacom tablet. I mean, they're all tools to create art. I mean, really, the, the big drawback for me doing my work analog is that in my small studio in, in, in the townhome that we're living in, I just have no room to hold any additional sketchbooks. My office is literally almost tightly packed. Now, that'll change when we move and uh, I'll be able to spread out a little bit. You know, one of the things I have been doing is exploring a technique where I actually draw digitally first and then print it out and then use a light box to go ahead and ink on top of my digital pencils. Hmm. I've really enjoyed the way that that's come out too because it's given me, you know, uh, kind of a new technique to work from. So I, I'm not, you know, saying that I'm only going to do digital stuff for the rest of my life, but uh, I do want to explore how the two can kind of work together. to Savannah Art College, you had uh, studied animation. Now, have you ever had the opportunity to uh, try out for like an, any animation houses or uh, things like that? Or is this something that you would like to do in the future? Or Well, when I when I went back to the Savannah College of Art and Design, I just, my wife and I had just gotten married. The first four years, we, uh, I, it took me about four years to complete my education and we were both working and things like that. And by the time I graduated, I looked very carefully at the job opportunities and there were job opportunities available, but where we were in our life, I mean, if I were to work in an animation house, I probably wouldn't see my wife very much at all. <laughs> uh, and I, I didn't want that to happen. And I also really enjoy teaching, too. So after, after I graduated, I kind of fell into the position uh, that, that I'm in right now where uh, there was a need to have an animation instructor, a 2D animation instructor. And I... I just jumped at the opportunity. So I teach flash animation. I teach uh, classical 2D animation. Animation is time consuming and I'm working on a, an animated piece right now that uh, is about a minute long, kind of like I think about a third of the way through it. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely one of those back burner things with the web comics, with the freelance, with the illustration work that I do. Animation has kind of taken a, a, a very strong backseat. And I wish that weren't the case, but I think someone would just have to invent the uh, 30 hour a day. <laughs> like if I just had five more hours in the day, I think I could I could do it. Okay. It's concentrate offs. It's just concentrate offs. Only reason why I ask is because I was curious to see if there was a, a PC Weenies uh, animated short coming soon. Oh, that is definitely the number one question that I get asked a lot. And actually, the short that I'm working on doesn't really have any of the PC Weenies characters in it, but there's a character that bears somewhat of a resemblance to Bob Okay, in, in the short. And uh, I've posted a, up a couple of teasers on the PC Winnie's website, but I think now it's been a few months, so I'll probably have to update a few more scenes and post up the latest progress on the on the cartoon uh, so people can get an idea of, uh, of what I'm talking about. Very nice. Now, as far as animation and like cartoon series that are out right now, is there anything that stands out or that you enjoy at this moment? Well, I really like the uh, the Justice League cartoon in terms of the visuals uh, and the storytelling. Uh, I haven't watched too many episodes of it, but from what I've seen, I've really been impressed. I also really like uh, uh, the uh, Avatar The Last Airbender cartoon. I'm working my way through the, uh, the set on Netflix, and it's a very, very well-written and very well-animated cartoon, too. So those are the, the ones that I'm kind of huge fans of. I don't really watch, because my wife and I only have basic cable, we don't have like the Nickelodeon channels, or we don't have any of the, uh, the, the special content channels where you can watch cartoons that are coming out nowadays on TV. So 
I usually hear about a lot of the the cool stuff from my students like, oh, you got to check out this cartoon. (laughs) And then I'll find it online and I'll go ahead and watch it or they'll, they'll put up a YouTube clip. So that's really how I'm getting introduced to some of the, some of the cartoons that are, you know, running nowadays. But, uh, I'm kind of an old school person too. I, I really like the, the classic Chuck Jones stuff. I like the, the, the Looney Tunes and the, the animation from the thirties, forties and fifties to me represents the, you know, my most favorite period of animation. Cartoon that, um, I used to watch heavily, including all, all the things that spun off from it that you really can't find nowadays is, uh, mm-hmm. Woody Woodpecker. Oh, yeah, I know. Um, that Walter Lance stuff is real hard to find. It is. It is real. I mean, it's, and I, and I understand that, you know, it's new era, it's a different time, so, you know, you want to change things up a bit, and sometimes you can't have what was on yesterday, today, but I'm kind of amazed that nobody has just taken it, and like, say, for instance, Cartoon Network has a, uh, has a programming channel called Boomerang, and mm-hmm. on Boomerang, they play all the older um, Hanna-Barbera material, the older Ruby Spears material, or the stuff that helped build Cartoon Network to what it is today, it's it's now all on there. Mm-hmm. And I'm really surprised that they haven't just like, you know, bought the, uh, at least the um, airing rights to, to air it because you had Woody Woodpecker, Barney the Bear, Inspector Willoughby, all that stuff. Just Andy all, Panda? Uh, yeah, Andy Panda, Chili Willy, all that stuff. Yep. Gone. I have not seen it anywhere. And and that and that really shocks me because you know I can still find now Grand Cartoon Network will bring out Bugs Bunny during Bugs Bunny and their friends during a like a holiday break, um, mm-hmm. and you know and the, and seeing that Hanna Barbera owns a lot of the MGM catalog they'll they'll show Tom and Jerry uh, you know t- you know to the fullest extent but I can't find Woody Woodpecker anywhere. Yeah, I'm just wondering if uh, Walter Lance Studios uh, or the estate of Walter Lance just never sold out to Turner. I think maybe that's what it is. Maybe. Yeah. They still own their material. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, that, that, that's, a, that's a really good point. Um, something that like I really, really started looking at is a lot of the um, filmation stuff. Uh, a while back, we interviewed a gentleman by the, by the name of Tom Cook, who uh, worked for filmation right up mm-hmm. until the time they closed down. And wow. um, he also worked for like a ton of other studios, including like Disney and Ruby Spears. Um, he met Jack Kirby. And all, all, all types of cool stuff. And he talked about all the tricks in animation that Filmation used to do mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, you know, to cut corners. Because they had to cut corners and they had to cut costs in order to uh, you know, get the stuff up. Because they were one of the few and, if, and, and then last American-based animation studio. Yeah. And so I uh, found a bunch of DVDs on the cheap um, from BCI Eclipse. Because for a while they had all the rights to a lot of Filmation stuff. And so I was looking over, like, the Flash Gordon stuff. I was looking over a Brave Star and Black Star, all that stuff. And, you know, and the thing is, as a kid, you were just taken in by it all. But now I watch it, and now I see the tricks. I see the animation yep. tricks. And, but those cartoons had the most beautiful backdrops. They did. I mean, absolutely beautiful. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think that as a kid, I could certainly detect the difference between, say, a He-Man cartoon and uh, a Transformers cartoon. But, uh, you know, and I think maybe uh, when, I, when I was younger, I, I kind of leaned a little bit more towards the G.I. Joe and Transformers because it felt like there was more movement. There was more moving going around. But yeah. I look at the, uh, the He-Man cartoons and I look at the She-Ra cartoons and, and everything that Filmation did. And I'm like, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty innovative. You know, they really found a way to kind of really compress the animation down. They would actually accentuate the poses of the characters versus, you know, have a lot of crazy movement. 
but it still, you know, telegraphed the story really well. And I mean, kudos to those animators for being able to have to work within those rigid constraints to put something out. I mean, even even Hanna Barbera in the in the sixties was he, you know heavily limited animated you know, limited animation. I mean, um, and the, the stuff that they did with the backgrounds there and the stuff they did with Yogi Bear. I mean, just like you know. It really blows my mind how much they were able to do because this is in the era before computers. You know, they were doing flash animation before flash as a program even existed. Because then they had to cut that cost because you're going from something that was once a theatrical a theatrical theatrical vehicle, like a lot of those mm-hmm. Tom and Jerry cartoons were, you know, theatrical cartoons, a lot of the Bugs Bunny cartoons were as well, and you've taken it from a theater to a television, so your budget is automatically slashed. Yeah. And so yeah, you get you have to have as many tricks as possible in order to be as profitable as possible because if you can't you can't make more cartoons that's right <laughs> and and i and i just remember like now especially now it's it's really really like instilled in my head when you watch a lot of the filmation cartoons they are the kings of the pan and scan they are <laughs> you know cuz they will scan if they will scan and you'll see a backdrop go from left to right or from right to left and that takes up about 10 seconds so yep. they were good at absorbing time that they were and they also did a lot of rotoscoping too uh you know for you know like when he-man would run and jump or when the characters would walk there i mean it, from what i've seen it, it it seems like it was uh rotoscoped mm-hmm. like when he-man would do that intro punch yes uh you know during this title sequence so uh yeah i mean all those things kind of like the mechanics of it, you know, having studied animation uh, at length, it really makes sense now. At the time, I was just like, well, why is he doing the same thing? You know, like when he says, by the power of Grayskull, how come it's always the same <laughs> the same basic cut? <laughs> I mean, I liked it, but I was just like, hmm, you know, it's, it, you know, it's always, Cringer's is always on, the, on his right-hand side. I mean, what if Cringer was on his left-hand side, you know? <laughs> it, was, it was all about saving that dough. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, Krishna, this has been a uh, this has been a fantastic interview uh, and a great recording. I can't say thanks enough for coming on uh, today's show. Um, this oh, was this was great. My pleasure. It, this is an absolute blast. I'm looking forward to coming back on at some point later on. Oh, most definitely, most definitely. Now, b- before you go, can you tell the people where they can find your comics? Yes, uh, my comics can be found at PC Weenies, and that's W E E N. I-E-S dot com. Uh, and you can also find my autobiographical strip, Uncubed, at uncubedthecomic.com. Excellent. And uh, can, they fi- can they find you uh, elsewhere on the internet, such as Twitter and whatnot? Yeah, Twitter. I'm PC Weenies on Twitter. Uh, and uh, let's see, you can view my portfolio site at krishnadraws.com. Fantastic. Well, Krishna, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Uh, this was a really good time, and we definitely will do our best to have you back sometime in the near future. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. Uh, You're welcome. You will be amazed. I actually read some books. Shut up. I'm not lying. I read some books. Um, I read some old school books. I read some kind of current books. I read seven books. Well, you're going to talk about all seven of them right now. (laughs) Okay. I ain't playing. Do it. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. right, right. I took it back to the old school for the first book, and I've actually bought a clean copy of this book when I was at Heroes Con for like a buck. But I still have the original uh, tattered version, and sometimes I'll just take it with me. Um, It's Iron Man issue 192. This is from the original Iron, Iron Man run. 
Um, this was printed back in March of 1985. And the front cover has the um, has Rhodey in the Iron Man armor against Tony Stark in the original gray Iron, Iron Man armor. And it says Iron Man versus Iron Man. And they're, they're like, they're scrapping on the front cover. It's got a Luke, Luke McDonald cover. And this is like one of those Iron Man books that like, as soon as I saw the cover, I grabbed it without even, without even knowing what the story was about. Well, as I said before, Rhodey, Rhodey is currently Iron Man because, you know, Tony still has like drinking problems and the personal issues and all this stuff. Well, Rhodey was kind of losing it for a while. And it was never really explained why he was losing it. Some, some people, like I thought that some of it was he was just mad because he felt that he wasn't being appreciated. Sometimes, you know, it just seems like he was just going crazy. And they trying to they explained it right before Mark, I mean, before uh, Iron Man became Tony Stark again and he got the Silver Centurion armor and took on um, Obadiah Stane and the Iron Monger armor. But um, this issue, basically, um, Rhodey is tripping and and Tony has to stop drinking and put the gray armor on to stop Rhodey. What I enjoy most about this book when I first opened the when I first opened it, it's Luke Luke McDo- Luke McDonald artwork and the inking team is a team of Akin and Garvey. I have no idea who these people are, but they are off the chain when it comes to inking Luke McDonald pencils because they make his pencils just look smooth. And the issue was written by Denny O'Neill. Oh, you can't go wrong with that. No, you can't, because he had a he had a pretty decent run on Iron Man. So, and I and as a kid, I didn't know, you know, I didn't pay any attention to that. The only thing I looked at was the artist, and that was pretty much it. But I was looking at this, and I was like, "Wow, Denny O'Neill wrote this." And it's funny, but before it says Denny O'Neill writer, it says Stan Lee presents. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it starts out with a nine page, a nine. I mean, I'm sorry, a nine panel first page first page is nine panels which you normally do not see then people will normally tell you either give either put a a splash page or you know like a couple big panels to really bring the story to you no Mm -hmm. it's nine panels of tony putting the original iron iron man armor on and you know and it has like you know a little bit of narration it's like his hands tremble his heart pounds and his palms are cold. He does not want to. He does not want to do this. And in the last panel, before he puts on the helmet, Tony speaks and he says, "But I must." And I'm like, "This is so freaking cool." And then the second page is a splash page of Tony in the original Iron Man armor, and and like he has two of his assistants, who are also Rhodey's assistants, standing behind him. And you know they look like the they look like Pepper and um, and Happy Hogan, but they're not. Their uh, new assistants, and I forget the guy's name, but the woman's name is. Now, now just be patient with me because these, this is a lot of letters for a name. Clytemestras. Clytemestras. Or Clyde Sounds like, like another name for the clap. And <laughs> it's just the strangest fucking name I've ever heard. But um, basically, Tony has to stop Rhodey. He's fighting this generic Mort villain called Vibro, who looks like a reject from the 70s. Um, <laughs> Vibro? Vibro. And wow. Vibro shoots off vibrations and not the Marky Mark and, and not the Marky Mark and Funky Bunch kind. But oh. yeah, I had to take it there. I had Why? to. It was necessary because you yep. remember that song. So don't That's run. quite unnecessary, actually. No, no, I'm, 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 nope. You remember the house style. But anyway. 
<laughs> he has to stop. F- f- feel the vibration. See, now, now you taking it too far. That's for Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, a roadie's fighting Vibro, and like it's at an air show, and you know, there's a lot of destruction. You know, there are a lot of people out, out there trying to escape all the damage, and Rody is just concentrating on Vibro and is not paying attention to the environment around him, and you know, bad things are happening. So it ends up they take care of Vibro, but then Tony has to fight. Tony has to fight Rody with this old school, with this old school armor, and um, Tony finds ways to uh, activate things in Rody's armor to uh, keep him off track. It's it's a great. I, I thought it was a great issue, and the best part of it, and the best part of it is um, when he finally stops Rody. Um, you know, Tony really tries to talk to him, and then, like, Rhodey explains that, um, you know, he doesn't want to give the armor up because he says, he's like, you want to take, you want to take the only thing that means anything to me. Ever, <laughs> ever since I was a little kid, all I ever thought about was being a hero. That's why I enlisted in the Army, why I went to flight school, why I volunteered for, for NAM. Well, you know, nowadays it's updated because that's no longer the case. <laughs> Finally, I make it. Pick up the whole package. Hero, forget that I'm a superhero. Now it's going to be all gone. And Tony's trying to tell him, I don't want it. You can have it, but you just got to get your shit correct. So, and at the end, they shake hands. And um, then a couple issues later, there's a, a thing where, you know, Rhodey's got these quote unquote demons in his head. And then he goes to see uh, a shaman or shaman from Alpha Flight. And Alpha Flight removes the demons. And then it goes back to Tony being Iron Man. So, but this is like one of my favorite issues because it was just such a cool fight. And to see Tony like use his ancient armor to take down Rhodey was fantastic. So, and the art is just, man, I love the art. Luke, Mac- Luke McDonald was born to draw Iron Man. I'm, I'm serious, man. It, go back and go look at that entire run he did pencils, he did pencils on. He is still one of the most underrated artists in comic books. Ever. That is a man I would like to meet. I wonder what he's doing right now. Yeah, I wonder what he is doing. You know, he's one of my favorites, man. You know, from JLA Detroit all the way to uh, to Iron Man. books i've really been getting into is i zombie from vertigo and i'm not even a mike allred fan i'm not but his his art style fits this it's this book i got a a a really cool like buffy feeling from it like i don't know are you a fan of buffy and like angel the tv show and stuff like that yes i am well it's kind of got like that kind of feel to it it's got some interesting characters there's a bunch of like vampire chicks that run a paintball business there's there's a dude that turns into a wear terrier a were terrier? Yes. He he's instead of a werewolf, instead of a wolf, he turns into a terrier. There's two guys that are hunting like all these monsters and stuff. And I zombie is about a chick who's a grave digger, and the reason why she's a grave digger is because she's a zombie. And if she doesn't eat brains once a month, she becomes like one of those crazy uh Robert Kirkman zombies. So she works at a cemetery. At night, she comes back to the cemetery and she opens up somebody's head and eats their brains. And then, but the only thing is, is she gets their memories and things like that. And uh, so, right now, she's trying to solve this dude's murder. So it's kind and of she, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. And there's another character in it, and it's a ghost that lives in the cemetery who died in like the '60s. 
she hangs out with her all the time. So it's so. kind of like Chew, but with a type of a zombie appeal. I mean, I'm not trying to knock. I'm not trying to knock it. I'm not trying to. No, knock I know it. you're not. I know you're not. I'm just trying to make it relate. <laughs> Always trying to make stuff relatable. Yes. It, it, it's I don't know. It's, it seems kind of cool. It's weird. I like to see where it's going. And like I said, I'm not really a huge fan, uh, f- fan of Aldright, but his art style really fits this for some reason. So and I think I, I, oh, his wife is coloring him. I think or inking him. She's doing something to him. So coloring, um, yeah. How, like now, now, how many issues are you in? Is this just the first issue you've read, or I read the first two. I have the third in front of me. I have not got to read it yet. Ah. Because in all honesty, dude, I've been trying to get caught up on my modern comic reading, but I have been reading a slew of old issues for uh, Tales from the Attic. So I literally, honest to God, I have about eight books ready to go. Nice. People have really been digging uh, Tales from the Attic, man. I just I just have fun doing it, man. That's all. And hopefully it comes through. Some, some are not as hot as the others, but what are you going to do? I mean, they can't all be winners, damn it. <laughs> you know what else I've been reading really is, is really good too is um, Brave and the Bold and dude this last one I read <laughs> you know what the team up was dude what was it the, inf- the Legion of Substitute Heroes meets with the inf- Inferior Five and it was awesome because it tied into the story beforehand which was the Legion of Superheroes and the Doom Patrol and there was like it was a time travel star- story obviously right so there was like one part in his book, like in the first the first part of the story with the Legion of Superheroes and the Doom Patrol, like their time bubble starts to break down and all of a sudden one of the dudes from Legion of Superheroes reaches into this computer console and he pulls out like this white fuzzy powder puff. Uh-huh. And they gave no explanation to it whatsoever. And he's like, I have no idea how this guy or you And I remember reading that going, That is so random. <laughs> Why? Why would someone, like, there's no, where would you go from here? And then, boom, dude, the next issue, the uh, Legion of Substitute Heroes and the Inferior Five break their time bubble. So they go back in time and steal the Legion of Superheroes time bubble. (laughs) (laughs) And they break it because Dumb Bunny falls into the computer console. And that's how, that's her powder puff tail. Dumb Bunny. Unbelievable. <laughs> it's been fantastic, dude. Blackhawk and, and the Blackhawks and the Flash is actually was nominated for an Eisner, which is his first book on that. It, that was his first story on that uh title. Hmm. It was nominated for an Eisner. So I mean yeah, it's I mean it's been good stuff. Like it's just been weird. Batman and Brother the Geek. Yeah, I saw, I saw that one. I, dang, I forgot to pick that up. I've got a, a issue. I've got a couple of the, the Milestone character team-up issues, and I also have the Green Lantern and Dr. Fate issue. Yeah, I think that was before. That was before Straczynski, yeah, I think. Yeah, that's one book I really would be hard-pressed to stop buying because it, it has been just that good. I'm, and I still don't understand why team-up books don't do you know don't perform as well as they should now i know it's from a different time from a different era growing up team up books were all the rage mm-hmm. because you know as a kid hey i get x amount of superheroes for the, you know for this much money yes you know that's why i always bought justice league avengers marvel team up uh, or dc comics presents which was essentially a superman team up or right. when burn took over superman and action comics became a team up book that whole burn run which is short 
I bought. Because yeah, I, I got love the, that too. I, I love those team ups. I like the first one was uh, Superman and the Teen Titans. And I, yeah, and, and he went crazy and ripped off Cyborg's legs. <laughs> yeah, it was just it's insane. Um, <laughs> utterly freaking insane. Then you find out what happened. Uh, like basically some uh, some paralyzed some dude that was like crippled had some technology to swap bodies with Superman. Mm-hmm. And Superman was like in the crippled guy's body with with uh, <laughs> with um, crutches. Crutches. Yes, thank you, thank you. It's too early in the morning to record. So that's what I'm here for. I appreciate it. And um, and, he's, and then they find a way. They found a way to switch switch back bodies, and then the end. So, but no, I, I love that run. It was like a burn a pencils with Terry Austin inks, and then later it became burn pencils with like Keith Ill- Keith William Link uh, Williams inks. It's mm-hmm. Good stuff. It was good fun. Good fun stuff. And there was also like a there was also a Superman, Superboy, Legion story too, which was weird. Because that was all oh, right, yeah, yeah. Because that's all post crisis. Yeah, and it was that was kind of strange. I'm like, they allowed him to do this, and they, they, they and they wrote and they wrote it in a way to where it made sense and it didn't affect anything. But uh, yeah, they didn't allow him. He just did it. Well, good point. <laughs> they said, John, I don't think we should. And he went. They went okay. <laughs> <laughs> but oh. I finished that uh, G.I. Joe Snake Eyes limited series that was uh, written by uh, by Ray Park and Kevin Van Hook. And I had the first two issues. I talked about it a, a, a while back on the show. And I finally had time to read the last two issues. Essentially what the story is about is, is that there's a guy uh, dressed up as Snake Eyes killing criminals and, and, and doing it doing in Snake Eyes' name. So Snake Eyes needs to find out what's going on and who's trying to you know make Snake Eyes look like a baddie. Not only is this fake Snake Eyes killing bad guys, he's also killing innocents. So basically, I'm going to spoil this, So just so you know anybody that wants to read it. What ends up happening is, is that Snake Eyes finds out it's one of his old fellow co-students when he used to be in the school with the hard master. And this kid was infatuated with fire and put a uh, barn on fire and almost you know, killed all the horses in the barn. But Snake Eyes got a hold of hard master and they saved the horses before the, you know, the barn completely burned to the ground. And kicked the student out of school. I think his name was uh, Nak- Nakamura. Nakamura-san. And so now Nakamura, come to find out, later on ended up working with Cobra. And Cobra told him to dress up as Snake Eyes, make Snake Eyes look bad, to lure Snake Eyes out and hopefully kill him. And all this other stuff. So Snake Eyes and them end up fighting for like the last two issues. And Snake Eyes ends up winning. It's okay. The first two issues were a lot better than the last two. I... You had like a lot of panels to to perform this fight. I just didn't think that the fight came off as dynamic as it as it could have been, especially if reading from all the generations of GI Joe that I've read. We've seen like a lot of dynamic Snake Eyes fights, mm-hmm. and there was just something missing. And it wasn't like with the story itself. I thought, like I said, the story itself was fine, and I like Ferguson's artwork. It's just that there's all there's something missing in between the panels to really bring the fight across. And seeing that they're both wearing Snake Eyes costumes, you know, sometimes you don't know who is who, but then you, you know, then you keep reading and then you realize who is who from their styles or whatnot. But it was just something missing 
the writing collaborate the collaborative effort efforts of Ray Park and Kevin Van Hook were solid though. The inks were good. Uh, Mark Deering did the inks. Inks are solid. It's just there's something there's something in, in the in the artistic storytelling that's missing to give the uh, story more pop. Although I will admit in the fourth issue when Snake Eyes finally defeats Nakamura, like the last two or three pages of the fight, the last two pages of the fight, very well put together. Um, there's a there's a good amount of narration because you have two you know you have one guy that doesn't talk, <laughs> as aka Snake Eyes, and then one as a Snake Eyes imposter that does talk but he just gloats. So you have to have narration. You know the writers felt that you have to have narration to really sort it all out. Although I could have done with a silent issue. I've read G.I. <laughs> Joe 21 back then. Recognize? Oh, I was just at a um, tag sale, right? I was driving by, and this dude actually had a sign out in front of his house that said, collectibles and comics. I said, all right, let me stop in. He had like the death of the whole death of Superman collection. Mm-hmm. This fool stuff I'm selling for fifty cents. This fool's trying to sell for twelve dollars. <laughs> and he had, and I'm not even lying, dude. Three ginormous boxes full of laser discs. If I knew you had one, I would I would have called you up. Oh man. no, I don't have it anymore. That laser oh. that laser disc player is gone. It's gone the way of the dodo. It is gone. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to let shit go. I understand. No, people are into that shit, though, man. Buying up the laser discs. Well, there are people that are just, like, infatuated with media, period. You know, I, dude, I mean, I know of people that have, like, the original VHS top loader and then the Betamax and then, like, the regular VHS player <laughs> And then the S video or the Super VHS. See, people forgot about Super VHS. Like, so did I. What the hell is a Super VHS? Basically, it was a higher resolution, a higher resolution VHS player that used special Super VHS tapes. And no, the the, the tapes did not have capes because they were super. And um, yes, oh, then why would you buy it? I don't know. But no, those things were expensive. Super VHS <laughs> players, Laserdisc players, the DVD players that also play Laserdiscs. Yeah. No, I don't remember that yeah. either. Oh, no, no, dude. I had friends that had that stuff. I mean, they were hardcore. Hardcore. I had a friend, like, when DVD players came out, he had a 50-disc DVD player. I'm like, dude, why do you have... It's like a 50-disc changer. I'm like, why do you need that? I'm like, you won't even remember half the movies that you have in the damn thing. <laughs> wow. But, yeah. And that book, the, the G.I. Joe Snake Eyes book, is a movie continuity book. It's not regular Joe continuity book. Right. A regular Joe continuity book. But... Yeah, like I said, it's entertaining. And, you know, IDW has lost their mind with these G.I. Joe books, dude. I think it's like that with, with any time you have a licensed property that's doing well and you want to satisfy different generations of fans. I think this is their way of saying this is the best way we can do it, and the books sell. If the books didn't sell, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do them. And you know G.I. Joe Origins, they got a new ripcord? Yeah. And it's Damon Wayne's? Marlin. Marlin. <laughs> Should have been. Well, he looks like Damon. He's bald. <laughs> Should have been Damon. I could buy Damon better as a uh, action hero than Marlon. <laughs> don't even lie. I'm, I'm you staying, can't say. I'm, I'm staying out of it. I'm staying out of it, sir. I'm staying out of it. I'm not going to say nothing. I'm staying out of it. Because we all remember The Last Boy Scout. Yes, we do. And that movie was awesome. <sighs> <laughs> I tried to watch it again. It don't play the same. <laughs> 
Yes, it does. It does not play the same. There's it some does. there's some funny stuff in it though. Though, hey, you, and you had an early appearance of Halle Berry. Get, yes, getting shot up in a strip club. Yep, she was a stripper. Although I do find it funny though, watching the opening scene with the football game, and the dude just <laughs> dude just like the dude is like running with a football, pulls out a gun, just starts shooting football players. And Hell it, yeah! And he was under pressure. <laughs> I got to get this first down. Otherwise, I just got to bust a cap. And I'm just right. like, this was just, it was bizarre. I mean, I like it. I just don't like it as much as I did when I was younger. It's one of those films, that, it was one of those films that just didn't grow with me. A lot of stuff has, like, Commando. Oh, and you know what? I want to make a little tidbit of an announcement here, okay. maybe. I want to see what the listeners think. Write in. Let us know. But uh, Daryl and I have been kicking around the idea of doing an all Batman slash Gotham podcast. Now by Daryl, you're talking about Daryl Taylor from No Apologies Podcast, Comic Book Road Show, and The Fixer's Hideout, right? Is there another Daryl? No, no, I'm just making sure, you know, because the listeners got to know. Because <laughs> for me, there's no other Daryl. <laughs> I mean, I meet people now and they're like, hi, I'm Daryl, and I'll say, the hell you are. <laughs> Your name's Frank. I could meet Daryl Hannah right now, and I'd be like, no, your name's Joe Hannah, because Daryl from the Fixers Hideout is the only Daryl. Okay, but yeah, we're we're kicking the idea around. I want to know what uh, what 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 do you think? What do I think? Well, yes. I I think it's a good idea. I think you two uh, would would make for would make for a good Gotham centric uh, podcast. You two love Batman comics, and not only that, but I'm sure both of you will go on random tangents, and you will either say something to irritate the other person to start an argument. Like uh, like the whole V discussion on the uh, best of '80s uh, action shows, and then Daryl started talking about like you started mentioning V, and he, t- he started talking about the current series, and Daryl didn't like it. You kept going, Daryl, Daryl. <laughs> That's because he always got to start stuff. Like he could believe this is the thing that cracked me up. Right now, he could suspend his disbelief that Ricky from Boys in the Hood could be a lizard alien, right? But he can't disbelieve himself enough that he leaves a, a safe in the back of his closet. First off, why did you call him Ricky for poison? Because <laughs> that's who he was. What's his name? I can't remember his or, name. Uh, Morris Chestnut. Chestnut, yeah, that's it. Because he made so many shitty movies after that, man. I tried Anaconda 2, Electric Boogaloo. How come, stop, how come, though, the, the scene I remember most from Boys in the Hood was when Ricky got shot. And then you hear Cuba Gooding Jr. in slow motion. Ricky! <laughs> and, and then he starts running. Yeah, it, it, it's it's permanently that image is burned. That moment is burned in my head. It's just wrong. And every time I see Morris Chestnut, that's the scene I think about. And then Ice Cube and then his mom, they bring Ricky. They're like, why did you bring Ricky home? Why didn't you just really? Dang, they put him in a. They put him in Ice Cube's nice convertible. And they bring him home, and then I don't know. It's still it's still a classic to me. Uh, it's a film I, I I watch once I I watch every now and then. It's still well, one of it's still it's still one of Singleton's best movies. Mm-hmm. Oh, tangents aside, I think you two would do a great Gotham centered podcast. So do it. Get it, get get it out there. Do it. Okay. You know I'm sure he's able to pay you salary because I ain't paying you shit. So <laughs> that's all right. I'm used to it. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, now, now that we're on the same page with that, we're cool. Um. 
no, I want to hear you because you hardly ever ta- uh, talk about comics you read. I want, I want to hear. Okay, cool. Oh, I got another one then. I got Green Hornet number one. Now there are about fifty gajillion Green Hornet series out by Dynamite right now. Let me break it down for the people. This is the first Green Hornet series that was taken from a script that Kevin Smith originally did when he was going to do a Green Hornet film. He's going to direct one. And this limited series is based off of that script. Artwork by Jonathan Lau. Breakdowns were by Phil Hester. And then Lau did the pencils. Colors by Yvonne Nunez and letters by Simon Boland. Let me tell you something about this book. First off, I liked it a lot. I thought it was awesome. It was when I got to, like, the back of the book, this damn book, this is, number one has 15 different covers. Ridiculous. What happened? You fell asleep, woke up, and thought it was 1992 again, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, man. No, it's, it's crazy because, like, you have, um, okay, you have the standard, there's standard four covers, one by Alex Ross, one by John Cassidy, one by J. Scott Campbell, and one by Steven Segovia. And then they take those same covers and they make them just like uh, they, they strip the colors out and they make them 1 in 25, 1 in 50, 1 in 100, and 1 in 200 um, retailer incentive covers. Then Dynamic Forces has the exclusive Cool Green, J. Scott Campbell cover, the, the quote-unquote exclusive surprise John Cassidy, which is just basically like a film negative. Looks like a film negative. And they did the same thing with Alex Ross's cover and Steven uh, Segovia's cover. And then you have kick-ass retailer shared exclusive and like a, an Alex Ross green foiled cover. And I, it, I'm like, we don't need this many covers. Just give me the book. Well... <laughs> I, I got this when I went to uh, when I when I went to the Summit City Comic Con the night before the show, uh, DCB Service at their store they had like a, a big sale and they had like just a bunch of books in bins for like a buck a piece, and one of these books was Green Hornet number one, so I wanted to check it out and like I said before there are a bunch of Green Hornet series so like the average Joe would be really confused as to where they should really start just buy this book, this book starts out with basically the last. Green Hornet that we know, Britt Reed, uh, the one that we grew up with, you know, in the Cato being Bruce Lee. Right. Um, taking out the Yakuza and, uh, and the Mafia. And then, and then, you know, both Green Hornet and Cato agree that, look, we've taken care of all the crime. The police can handle the rest now. I think it's time for us to move on. They both agree. And Britt, you know, goes to his wife. He says, look, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And they have a, they have a young son. And, you know, his wife's like, look, just... You know, I want you to be here for your kid. And he's like, I will. He's like, I'm done. It's all behind me. I'm just going to do the newspaper thing. We're good. And then it fast forwards to the future. And his son has now grown up. He's very irresponsible and is living off of his parents' money, but doesn't want to work. But um, because it's Britt Jr. And Britt Jr. is living off of his parents' money, but doesn't want to work for his father because he feels that that's just not right. But yet he's taking the money. And then it ends with Britt's son flashing for like the paparazzi or whatever. And then uh, Britt's dad sees it in the newspaper. And that's how it ends. And I'm thinking that, you know, I'm going to sidebar this for a second. I'm thinking that the people that made this Green Hornet movie took bits and pieces. And I mean bits. Bits and pieces (laughs) from the Kevin Smith story to make, you know, to make their own version. Because I still, I still can't tell heads or tails of whether this new Green Hornet movie is going to be any good or not. I know Seth Rogen had good intentions, so I'm hoping for the best. This Kevin Smith limited, limited series, 
start has started off really good. Now I have to go get the other issues. So the artwork is fantastic. The artwork is great. The colors are great. To get you know to see the the Green Hornet's car, I think it's called the Black Beauty, if I remember right. I think awesome. And to see Cato kick some ass is always a cool thing. So yeah, this book is great. Um, great limited series. I'm definitely um, down to uh, unless yeah, it should be a limited series because it's just based off a of screenplay. So yeah, I think it's because uh, I bought the first issue. I really did like it a lot, but I was like, when I found out, you know, it was a a mini. I said, you know, I'm just gonna look for this and trade when it's over because I think it's eight to twelve. I think I dug it. So if there's one Green Seri- Green Hornet series you get, I would say get that one because you also have Green Hornet Year One, Green Hornet Cato. And the Kato book is the female Kato. And then there's the Green Hornet Strikes, which takes place in the near future. And there's like a couple other Green Hornet series, too. And oh, Kato Origins. It's yeah, well, there's one that, uh, what do you call it? Uh, doesn't Matt Wagner do year one? Yeah, Matt Wagner does year one. That's the one I'm looking forward to uh, reading myself. But all this, I'm waiting for, like, try and find these trades and bins or these books and bins because. It's too expensive, dude, to be buying all this. It's not like I don't want to read it. It's just that I don't know if I could afford to read it. It's oh, no, no, no. It ain't just a black aqua lad. Oh, it's not just a no, black No, no, okay. no. No, no, no. No, it's a black aqua lad who's afraid of water. Black Aqualad that's afraid of And his name's not even Aqualad, it's Black Lad. It's not boi- Black Lad. It's not. Stop. <laughs> According to you, it would be. If it was 1980, anywhere between 1970 to, ni- to 1984, it would have been Black Lad. But speaking of Teen Titans, that's a good segue. That's a good segue. What the hell does that have to do with the Teen Titans? Because Aqualad was a member of Teen Titans. And I've got a book that I want to talk to you about. Tales of the Teen Titans. Another book that I've read. I told you, I read a lot of books, man. Tales of the Teen Titans. I'm taking it back to the 80s. Was it 83? Like the original Tales of the Teen no, Titans? This was uh, Tales of the Teen Titans from that series from 83. This is issue 81 from printed in September 87. And they took a story uh, that was originally printed in a Teen Titans annual, as a matter of fact. This issue's uh, story was originally presented in the new Teen Titans annual 2. But this one story was written by Marv Wolfman. Oh, I'm sorry, it was script and edits were by Marv Wolfman, but it was also co-plotted with pencils by John Byrne. The embellisher... Yeah, he did the cover, too. Yeah, yes, and the embellisher was Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Mm-hmm. I, I got Byrne and Lopez together on a book. It's awesome. And it's a, it's a bedtime story tale, because this is when... I'm sorry, uh, not Donna Troy, but Donna Long, because she was married to Terry Long. That's um, true. Uh Terry's daughter wanted a bedtime story before you know going to bed. So Donna told the story of the revenge of the wrestling reptiles from outer space. Yep. And uh, basically, <laughs> Doctor Light goes to California to check out this fault li- fault line. That's the female Doctor Light. Yes, yes, it is the female Doctor Light who was intru- originally introduced in uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, right? Yep. Okay. And <laughs> uh, she talks with these. Uh, geologists about this fault line and in this fault line she accidentally activates these robotic dinosaurs and it's up to the titans and this titans team is starfire wonder girl nightwing with the disco collar 
mm-hmm. uh, Cyborg and Changeling before they changed his name to Beast Boy. That ain't no disco collar, dude. That's that thing is ginormous. Yeah, dude, this collar is huge. It's like that's like disco collar on steroids. Yeah, it look look like he 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 lost the rest of his Dracula cloak. <laughs> but um, you know, man, you get like the Titans Tower, the Titans Jet. They fight robotic dinosaurs. It is an absolute blast. This is this was like a team book for sure. <laughs> Plenty of exposition and uh, and fighting. It's just a lot of fun. When that story's done, there are some pinups in the back. One pinup is by Paris Collins, the Blue Beetle artist, and it's got a Cyborg, Nightwing, Changeling, Jericho, Starfire, and Wonder Girl busting through like the comic page. And then the second pinup is by my homeboy Chuck Patton with inks by Mike DiCarlo of Cyborg, which is awesome. And then the third one is a Nightwing piece by Steve Rude. This book, along with that Iron Man book that I talked about earlier, is like two of my favorite comic, like of a list of my favorite comic books of all time. This was another book that always went with me wherever I went. Found it not too long ago, and I just stopped for a second, and I remembered where I was when I read this book. So I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, when I was a kid, I remember where I was when I read this book. So I said, you know what? I need to read this again. And it was a lot of fun, man. Good times. That's awesome. I do remember that book. I have that somewhere in a box someplace. I do. And that concludes this week's PKD Black Box. The PKD Black Box is available via iTunes, or you can go to pkdmedia.com to get our show, check out our forum, and read comics like Mercury and the Murd, XO one on the Rock Solid Steelbots, Agents of Colt, and Luke Foster's The Gang from the Store, six days a week for free. And if you're on iTunes or our forum board, drop us a line or email us at blackbox at pkdmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. Until then, dream big and hustle hard. You gotta always look at the positive. Oh, most definitely. Because if not, the negatives will drive you absolutely insane. Yep, yep. There's there's enough to complain about if you look. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 yeah. You can just you can do an internet search on complaints, and there's plenty. Right. <laughs> uh, so much so much uh, snark and, and, and complaints on the internet, man. Sometimes I think I'm starting to understand what what Prince meant when he said that the internet is dead. Uh-huh. It's not that the internet itself, from a tech, from a technological aspect, is dead. It, you know, it's vast and it keeps growing and growing. But I think he means it's dead by um, the form of um, attitude that so many people on the internet hold. Yeah, and I think that's what I think that's what he tried to get across. But because it's Prince, uh, some people thought he was just being snooty. And I don't, I don't think that was the case. But anyway. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think he makes a valid point uh, if, if you look at it from the standpoint that everyone just seems to be so sarcastic or so jaded mm-hmm. and uh, there's, you know, there's really almost very little optimism shown by a lot of people on the internet and it's just – I think there's just a lot of expectations that people have yeah. and when you realize how much we are already do have, I mean the fact that we have this huge connected network and we've got these pretty awesome computers these days, I mean – we have a lot of really cool things to be thankful for. Oh, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I mean, all the advancements in the past five years alone are utterly amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I come from an age where when I, when I was in college, the computer lab had nothing but dot matrix printers. 
Yeah, I know. Me too. <laughs> I'm right there with you. I am right there with you. You know, and, you know, minimal technology. Everybody was using WordPerfect, and it was that basic WordPerfect with the blue screen with, like, the red header. Oh, yeah. awful. Yeah, I, I was there. I was there. <laughs> so When I started college, uh, they had uh, IBM PC XT machines, mm. uh, and they also had uh, Mac Pluses. That was the heady days of the early uh, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I was there. <laughs> I, was, I was definitely there for all of that. But I'll tell you what. Let's um, go ahead and get this interview underway. Um, okay. 